welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Leah West, and I'm here with Dr. Christopher Parsons from the Citizen Lab to talk to you about the National Cyber Threat Assessment put out last week by the Canadian Cybersecurity Center. And I say last week because we are recording this on the 23rd of November, and this is going to be a two-part episode. And I'm really excited to have Chris Parsons with us here today. Chris, do you want to just start by introducing our audience to who you are? Many of them are probably familiar with your work and the work of the Citizen Lab, but for those who don't, who are you and what do you do? Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. So my name is Chris Parsons. I'm a senior research associate at the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the U of T. So my direct area of specialization and work is around national security, data security, data privacy, and telecommunications data writ large, which brings me into a whole lot of different spaces. And then the lab more broadly can be thought of sort of engaging at the intersection of human rights and digital technologies. And so that means we have a threat intelligence team that is tracking groups like NSO that builds uh, malware and then provides it to state or state associated actors. We have another team that for 15 plus years has been looking to see how different countries are engaged in filtering of the internet, working with our international partners. They're probing to see what is censored in different parts of the country and how exactly does that censorship uh, take place or the technical instruments that make that possible. We have a team that does uh, reverse engineering. For the past while, they've principally been focused on Chinese social media applications like WeChat or TikTok or companies like that. And just really trying to understand how exactly censorship takes place and what is the relationship there between how governments, the governments in China compel censorship and the way that uh, private companies actually take up those edicts and then build them in themselves. We do a bunch of work around disinformation and misinformation. Previously, we looked more prominently in the Middle East and Gulf region and really trying to understand how misinformation operates there and then sometimes contrasting it to sort of the North American example that we're more familiar with. I liaise and intersect with all of those teams in different points at different times, but formally I do a lot more of sort of policy stuff and I work with uh, our legal fellows principally. So we've done work on encryption uh, policy in Canada, we look at telecommunications policy, national security policy, and then we've also done other kinds of work that has looked at things like stalkerware, so malware that's used to target women, children, and girls by abusive partners, and then the way that telecommunications companies also in Canada and abroad are involved in the collection and management and handling of personal information. So you're not at all busy then? No, it's a really quiet time, to be honest. Nothing's going on. There's no new major legislation that seems to drop every week. It's just totally chill. Totally chill. <laughs> Well, I would love to pick your brain on all of that, and some of it we will get to. I did want to focus on the National Cyber Threat Assessment. This is the second one that the Cybersecurity Center has published. The first one came out in 2018. Chris, you had a great thread on Twitter of your overall impressions. The thousand-foot assessment of the NCTA, what do you think? Overall, I think it's really good, to be honest. I think that there are maybe some niggles that we can get into where I would have liked more detail or a little bit more clarity. But I actually look at this as a very helpful document, not just an understanding where the Cyber Center and, and by extension the CSE is, but because these reports are written in collaboration with other government bodies, such as ISAD and Global Affairs Canada, I think it starts to showcase where Canada is in paying attention to certain concerns the way that we continue to frame or not frame actors as responsible for certain kinds of activities. And I think that it, it does a, a good job of, I don't think there's, outside of one or two things, I don't think there's a lot in here that someone would look at this and go, oh, oh, wow, I've never considered that. That's brand new, but that's perfectly fine. I think it's just on a really good comprehensive overview of the, the way that the threat landscape is evolving. 
the threats to organizations and the threats that individuals are facing, and then sort of interrelated how organizations are threats to individuals and vice versa quite often. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I thought that the assessment did a really good job of talking to Canadians like grownups, but also grownups who aren't necessarily experts in the field like you are. So giving them enough information to understand the threat landscape, but also not sugarcoating it. And I want to start with the headline or what was grabbed from the headlines for most journalists covering this beat. And that was two different things. One, the specific naming of four state actors in the report, which was China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, as well as the identification that there was an expectation that state actors would try and gain access to Canadian critical infrastructure, namely our electric grid. Did anything about that statement or about that headline catch you by surprise? And as someone who is experienced and might have to explain that headline to your grandma, what would you tell her and what would you tell your students at Monk about what to take away from those headlines? First, the fact that those names there, is that particularly surprising? No, not really. I think that's who we would normally put as the bad countries that we name. I think it's noteworthy to recognize that those are not the only concerns. We're looking at Gulf states that are rapidly building up their capacity. We're seeing a large number of countries that have low rule of law, and so they're really leaning on their criminal operators. Now, whether we're going to see those groups target electrical systems in the next year or two, Hopefully not, but but the report does make clear that we're seeing a substantive upskilling around the world and not just in those four countries. I think it is noteworthy that one of the areas where you don't see names attached is concerns around industrial espionage. Throughout the report, we routinely see different countries framed as more or less likely to engage in an activity, but we don't have the same level of clarity for the the reports discussing that. We do see in other areas, so there's a a reference that Russia is involved in trying to target COVID-related research. But I think that if I were to sit down with someone and say, why does this matter? I think it matters because we're seeing increased coordination amongst Canada, the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand in naming actors and also starting to prepare Canadians for when there's not going to be four groups. There's going to be five, six, 12, 15, 30. And I think that's a future that Canadians really do need to think about. And I think quite often Canadian businesses and Canadian organizations don't really think that we stand up that big. So why would someone try and exfiltrate our data? And hopefully this is amongst a a larger series of efforts to really raise Canadians' awareness that we do things really well. We build amazing things. We need to be mindful. And when it comes to the electrical systems, it's worth noting that report that says probably not that likely that Russia is going to open up dams and flood anywhere unless we get into an armed situation. And so that's in, that is meant as, and it's explicit in the report, this is where we have parties that are positioning inside infrastructure. It is not exclusively because they're going to turn off the lights, but it's also to put pressure on countries to adopt or not adopt certain policies. And so that's something definitely um, that's worth noting and thinking about going forward. One of the things that caught me, I just point back to the 2003 power outage in the Northeast, where a power outage in one small town took out Ontario and New York City. And our infrastructure is deeply connected, especially in the Northeast between the United States and Canada. And I can see that being another reason why, even if Canada doesn't seem like a particularly juicy target in terms of critical infrastructure targeting, that the threat actors may be looking to position themselves inside our infrastructure. 
You did talk about criminal organizations, and the report does talk about the overlap between state actors and criminal actors and states leveraging criminal techniques, so ransomware, hackerware type activity. And I do think that there was a real focus again in this report to tell Canadians that you are likely to be targeted by cybercrime. Do you think the report does a good job of communicating that? And do you think Canadians get the risk? of how deeply these cyber crime organizations may actually be connected in some cases to state enterprises? I really don't think the Canadians have a, a particularly great appreciation of it. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. First, ransomware is just, it's, it's breathtaking to watch. It's actually not in a good way, but really amazing and cool to watch. This has gone from something that wasn't boutique, but wasn't as common as it is now. And now you can go to uh, different crime war sites and you can just get ransomware as a service, basically. It is not expensive. It's not hard to do. So this is going to be an incredibly easy and common tactic because you can squeeze individuals for not a lot of money individually, but a lot in aggregate. And then more substantively, as larger organizations are targeted and the cost of getting your decryption keys, if you get them, is going up. That's seen as an increasingly juicy target. And for a bunch of reasons. One, if you're a startup, you probably don't want to tell anyone, hey, we might have lost all our secret sauce. It's hard to get money in your ventures. If you're a medium-sized or enterprise customer, you also may not want to disclose it because A, it could impact your ability to be acquired if that's something you're interested in. Or if you're a medium or larger, other groups might look at you and say, oh, well, you're damaged goods. Or, oh, are you that special? Or, oh, what will this do to your stock price? So I think that there's a natural disincentive in, in some ways, a market disincentive to notify authorities, which also makes it harder for government to know what's going on. And then all of that is compounded by the fact that we really don't have a particularly effective way of collecting information about individuals who've been targeted and not just making them whole, but also then punishing the parties who are responsible for it. So all of this works out to be, is this going to be a burgeoning area of crime? Yes. Is it going to target more and more people? Yes. And are state actors going to um, use this to cloak what they're doing at times, or they're going to sort of stand offside and, and collect information that's also exfiltrated by the actual criminal organizations that are doing this? Yes. So this is going to be a problem. We've had situations during the COVID outbreak where hospitals have been discussed with Target. And it's no longer, it's never a laughing matter, but it's increasingly serious as healthcare services and other critical infrastructures targeted. And I think you make an excellent point about the fact that there is really a serious lack of accountability for people who engage in this practice. And you've seen some calls from the private sector for what people call hackback, which is the ability for information officers or private security firms to be able to get retribution on behalf of their clients or try and steal back the information that is lost. Do you think there's a solution there or do you think the solution is equipping our state agencies with more tools and capacity, or do you think it's something else? I really don't think hackback is a solution. It would be a massive legislative change we'd need to do. It seems like a particularly problematic road to go down. I think that one of the difficulties, and I say this having spoken with executives from a bunch of companies in the United States and Canada, one of the problems from their perspective is that let's say something happens. So maybe it's ransomware, or maybe it's any of the 9,000 other things could happen to their network by a foreign operator. So they call the FBI, they call the RCMP. And if they're lucky, they show up within a week or two, which is not common. And when and if they do show up, you may give them data and then they go away and you never hear from them. And so there's very little incentive to work 
with the authorities quite often because there's no visibility into what I get out of facilitating. And that's compounded by the fact that there's often competing interests between uh, a company, especially when you bring in a counterintelligence arm, either the FBI or the RCMP. And when you bring it through the counterintelligence side, they may want to leave the operation running for a while. They may want to linger in the network. Who's doing it? Collect data. And if you're a business, you want to reformat your servers. <laughs> you want to get up and running. You don't want to have bad guys continuing to wander through your networks. So I think that right now we have a whole bunch of badly aligned policy positions. And we're not unique in Canada. I think the U.S. has a similar challenge here. But if anything, what it says is we need better and stronger and faster defensive systems. And so it's one of the many reasons why I worry about ideas of should we ensure that law enforcement can get into something or national security can get into something, so backdoors or something like that. It's problematic from the get-go, but these are not things that are going to be invisible to the criminal actors that are in the world. They're going to use the same sort of exploits to get around defensive architectures and then they're going to use on backdoor encryption in the case of ransomware. And we're gonna be back in the same situation. So I, I really think that hackback is, is deeply problematic. It also starts to turn the world into a even less friendly place on the internet, which I think is the last thing that we need. And there's also little to no evidence that you're gonna be successful. So if you've got operators who are working through a number of cutouts, did you get back to them? Or did you shut down the little old lady in Italy who they were walking through her network? I don't think that's the situation that Canadian organizations want to be in generally. You touched on it briefly, and I just want to expand before getting back to the threat assessments. The idea of backdoor on Intrepid, we've had a number of officials from Canadian national security agencies saying that encryption is a major problem, but we're starting to see a little bit of a tide change from some former security officials in the United States, James Baker, for example, saying that force back doors is not the answer. But year after year in these Five Eyes communiques after ministerial meetings between Five Eyes partners, so for listeners, Five Eyes is the US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, which is officially an intelligence sharing partnership, but has become more than that. Again, this year calling for IT companies to work with law enforcement to be able to provide security officials with the information they need. And they usually use the example of child luring and child pornography as an example of why they need access or this development and the technology. And it seems when you get into these conversations that always comes down to the stalemate. I wonder if it really is a stalemate or if there are actual plausible alternatives besides the use of exploit technology, like you mentioned, is there a way forward here? Or are we going to constantly be in this privacy versus security dilemma on this issue? I think actually your last point is exactly the point to start. Is it a privacy issue? Sure. Yeah, but it's not. This is a security issue versus a security issue. When we're talking about encryption, what are we talking about? Are we talking about encryption on stored devices? Are we talking encryption transit? Are we talking encryption cloud environments? There's a whole bunch of things that are going on there. End-to-end -end encryption is really important for a lot of reasons. This is one of the very few things that we figured out how to do so we can communicate securely. And this applies when you're a diplomat, a Canadian diplomat, let's say, and you're working out of, let's just say, a repressive country and you want to communicate back to Ottawa in a really secure way, you jump on Signal, you jump on WhatsApp. Why? End-to-end encrypted. You can get the information back in a secure and safe way. We use this as citizens and individuals in commercial transactions, in communications with loved ones and partners. 
We engage in all sorts of rights protective behavior. And if we start impeding the ability of sending communications, not only does it affect that, which is not nothing, Encryption isn't just used to secure your data, it's used to authenticate the data that you have is from who it comes from and the information itself is correct. And so when you start doing stuff like tinkering around with encryption, it starts running into some questions like, okay, are you affecting the ability to uh, do integrity checks on software updates and software downloads? And we know in the United States, one of the things at different points in that debate that have come up is there should be a way for Apple at all to push down unique updates to devices and then that will unlock the phone. Well, right now, one of the very few things in computer security that sort of works most of the time, and those caveats aren't jokes, that's deliberate. They don't always work. And I can point to an example when they don't. We have trained individuals as, as a security community, trust your Chrome updates, just do them. Download your Apple updates, download your iPhone updates, download your, if we get into a situation where individuals are like, well, I, I don't wanna download this because it might have bad stuff. For most people, it probably won't, right? The government is not, Canadian or Western governments are not out to look at everybody. That's just not their game. Uh, not only is it illegal, not in their mandate, they wouldn't want to do it anyways. But as soon as you start building in these sorts of systems, as soon as you enable, say, Apple is one example, to force updates that remove the, the strong security on their devices, then you get into situations of, okay, now Apple has to keep that really safe from every single signal intelligence agency, human intelligence agency, everyone. So when they have employees and they're traveling around the world, where are you traveling? What access do you have? Can you be pressured? That's a huge watershed transformation. I, I really think that one of the, the fundamental difficulties with the way encryption is framed is it's often unclear what the actual positions being cast are. Is it law enforcement needs to have access to devices and get into it? Okay, that's a problem. But that's a question. That's a narrow question. Actually, in the United States, the Carney Foundation has a whole working group and they've set end-to-end encryption to the side. They've set server to device offside. And they said, okay, we're just going to see, is it theoretically possible to figure out a way of getting into very strongly secured devices? We're going to start there. If we can't do that, this other stuff seems a lot harder. So is that the thing? Or is it that we need to break all the end-to-end -end encryption and because this is where all the bad stuff is going on? Okay, well, that's a big ask, but you need to say it. And then you can't just say it's a problem. You need to have data. So I, as someone who has written a paper on this, I can authoritatively tell you, having gone through, having looked the past two years, having looked at all the interception reports to come out as required by federal statute every year, encryption is not mentioned in the narrative. Encryption is causing a problem for ability to, to, to engage in wiretaps. There needs to be a, a way of building the system out so that there's a real debate and not sort of just a talking back and forth of the security community and the math people say this and public safety says, well, geeks figure it out. That's not a debate to have. It doesn't work that discussion. <laughs> yes. One of my hobby courses recently is to try and disaggregate the conversations about security and personal security and state security and personal privacy and state security and try and disaggregate the issues and narrow them down to bite-sized pieces that we can actually resolve and maybe get things through. Because if not, the debates are so uh, deeply entrenched in the two sides' interests that it becomes impossible to really talk unless we focus narrow issue by narrow issues. One of the things we might see progress on, and I believe you think to the negative, going back to the cyber threat assessment, the cyber threat assessment makes very clear that anonymized data, once 
aggregated with other data can still tend to reveal or become identifiable about somebody, even if that original data you know, didn't have a person attached. And I know you have thoughts on this. And we also saw a, a bill tabled last week, C-11 in Parliament that would create a digital charter. Can you just talk to me about what your thoughts were about cybersecurity's mentioning of that in its report and how it was really revealed as this security threat, but at the same time, we seem to be putting in legislation that would allow for more of that to happen. Yeah, I really agree with what the Cyber Center has put out. I think that anyone who's been looking at sort of the intelligence machinations of various both eyes as well as operators on, on other teams, the mass exfiltration of large buckets of data and then putting them on top of one another is an ongoing and persistent national security issue. So we've seen in the United States as examples, there was the, the OPM hack, which revealed a bunch of information, and then Marriott lost all of its information, which is a preferred place for folks like the CIA to stay at, and then flight records for the airports that are closest to Langley. And one of the many reasons why this was expected to be done is to identify what are the possible vulnerabilities of uh, CIA officers who might be deployed abroad so that you can bring some pressure to them if you're, you're Chinese officials. Individually, do those buckets of information really do a lot? I mean, sure, but it's not like life-changing. But you put those three on top and you get all the other data that's coming out, financial data and so on and so forth, and, and you can start figuring out people's weaknesses. And, and that's a major security and intelligence risk. And this is raised in the, the threat assessment. I agree. Data that people imagine is anonymized is usually at best, and this is not even common necessarily, is best anonymized as far as they understand. <laughs> and as soon as it's minimally de-identified, you're like, it's fine, it's safe, we can send it to data brokers and do whatever we want with it. And the current iteration of the legislation that's recently tabled before Parliament, C11, I think in part in trying to recognize that all of this quote unquote anonymized information is already being collected. They're just gonna say you have to do that. And their requirements aren't that high as the legislation is currently written. But the position is this will be privacy protective and that way the data economy can thrive and all of the digital theories will dance. But I think what the, the threat assessment really says is if we just treat quote unquote de-identified data as safe, we are drastically understanding what's going on. It's really underappreciating the fact that there are indeed actors that are well-resourced, well-prepared well and ill-intented, and they will collect data and they will use it to apply pressure to, to Canadians and non-Canadians alike. So I, I think that it, it showcases a strong divide between ostensible privacy legislation and depressive security language and saying, we probably wanna think a little bit more carefully about the way that we're even collecting data. And I think that as soon as people have de-identified data, they tend to think it's safe. And I tend to look at de-identified data as more like when it's identified data, you're walking around with an open cup of radioactive waste. And it looks like water, so someone could drink it accidentally and you could kill them, but eh, you never know. And as soon as you're in a de-identified space, you've put it into a jug and it's sealed, but it's still radioactive waste. And it's still not the best thing to have, period. So if you don't have to have it, don't have it. Get rid of it. I, I, Remind I me to never drink out of your mug, Chris. Um, <laughs> I don't want to take too much more of your time, but we just witnessed a, a U.S. election that raised the issue of foreign influence online to many Canadians for the first time in 2016. The 
the spread of conspiracy theories and whatnot continued to play a, a part in the 2020 U.S. election. We know that foreign influence has been attempted in other elections. The Canadian government took it very seriously in 2019. The cyber threat assessment continues to express that this will continue to be something that foreign states seek to exploit. But you've raised some interesting questions about how much of this is really a threat if it doesn't work. Do you just want to tease out that idea for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start by saying that my colleagues, Gabrielle Lim and Alexa Abrams, are the ones that key me on in this phrasing. And Gabby mentioned that at a big sort of conference of disinfo scholars, would we all be in this room talking about disinfo if Donald Trump hadn't won the election. And people sort of looked around and were a little bit like, don't say this while the funders are around. <laughs> but I think that more to the point, and there's a number of scholars that are they're coming out with stuff, along with Thomas Ridd these days, that are raising questions about the efficacy of disinfo campaigns. And it, it presumes that relatively discrete amounts of influence in cyber environments are sufficient to meaningfully twist and contort opinion. And I think it's, it's perfectly appropriate it's raised in the report. So I don't have any issue with it being raised. And the report doesn't go so far as to say that this is the be all and end all and doom of democracy. And I think that's appropriate too. But I think it's more that we don't really have a good understanding about how useful or not this actually is. And there's a huge amount of time and effort that's now being spent detecting disinformation and misinformation in an automated fashion, right? So you're seeing these huge teams that are pretty impressive AI techniques and they can pick out quote unquote coordinated inauthentic behavior en masse. But those systems don't necessarily reveal what's going on. And so I'll just give you a handful of examples. My colleague, Alexei, he was looking at the Middle East and, and some other parts of the world. And so things that he found, there was a huge coordinated disinformation campaign that was taking place in Iraq. And so he's okay, well, he dug into it with a Middle Eastern expert. And yeah, it turned out to be a whole bunch of school kids who his exams were coming up, really thought that it wouldn't be a good idea to be in class while COVID was happening and wanted to get out of it. Now they had all the manifestations of bots because they were behaving in a bot-like fashion, but it was legitimate. And you also see bots that flare up all the time. And who are they? They're public health Twitter accounts that are spawned up and they're sending the same message and there's 40 accounts around them that are just retweeting the same thing. A, is it coordinated disinformation? Good question. We need to study that a little bit more. In those cases, I would say probably less. And two- For school kids, it's definitely disinformation. What effect is it? More broadly, when we're talking about foreign influence, so we're thinking about people have a different viewpoint on politics or something like that. How, I just, I, I really do have to wonder, how much of the time would we be worried about this as an issue if the chief disinformation officer wasn't sitting in the White House. If crazy conspiracy theories weren't being retweeted through the official Twitter account, and then when he's blocked there, going through official White House press statements. If you didn't have a sort of bizarre alternate reality showing up and being manifested through weird views that are promoted by Facebook, because it's advantageous for them in some ways to keep people on their platform, which means you wanna have emotional responses. And so they're marketing junk. I just don't know how much of that is coordinated foreign activity and how much of it is really problematic elements of capitalism combined with arguably not the most fit for office president that the United States has ever had operating simultaneously. 
The organization at GAC that's now responsible for measuring disinformation did a review of the Alberta provincial election as a first test in advance of the 2019 federal election in Canada and found that they found this type of activity, the influence activity that we learned to be associated with Russia, for example, in the 2016 presidential election, but it was local actors. Russia given everybody the playbook, and now it was local actors playing the game. So thanks for that. Really interesting take. It'll be interesting to see how that continues or does not continue to play out as we see a transition of power, hopefully smoothly, in the, the United States. If I can just say one thing. Yeah. So one thing, I, I mean, to, disinformation didn't seem to have a big effect in Canada during the last election, federal election. Thumbs up good to know. I actually think one of the really positive things about this, like setting aside whether we should be that concerned about disinfo or not, which I think, you know, we still can't fully decide. The fact that we had, as far as I can tell, uh, a pretty professional, thoughtful, here's what CSIS will do. Here's what CSC can and can't do. Here's what the RCMP will do. Here's what Elections Canada is going to do. Here's how we're going to build up the ASL. That I think is really great. And because we know that there are certain tactics that are more effective, the, leak, the, the hack and dump techniques or tainted leaks, which where there's minor modifications to content and that's put out during election cycles or major news cycles. The fact that that has been built up so that in forthcoming elections, a similar playbook can be announced. Like if this happens, here's how the agencies will behave. So it'll be very clear, hopefully, to Canadian politicians that if they are ever activated in an election situation, they're just following the rule set that pre-exists. They're not on the side of the Conservatives, the NDP, the Green, the Liberals. They're just doing what they've said they're going to do up, up front. So I think that there is something positive come out of it. And it's definitely that planning and coordination that we can bring to future elections. Great. We've covered a lot of ground. My last question is just as someone who would be a consumer of the Canadian Cybersecurity Center's products, someone who assesses them, who may even work in collaboration with them at times. How would you grade the Cyber Center's work to date? So far to date, I think that it's getting better and better. I think if you look at this assessment, it's pretty comprehensive. I think the center itself is coming out with some frequency and, and communicating what it's doing, which is positive. I always want a little bit more detail, but that will always be my position on the outside, asking for details from within. I think there are a few things that in the future, whether it's in the same report or a separate report, would be helpful. In this report, as in the last report, they, they identify what they think is likely, very likely, totally likely, unlikely, and so forth. I think it would probably be helpful if they did have sort of an after action, here's what we got, and here's what we got a little bit off, and here's how we are rejiggering things as a result. Or here's why we were wrong. Like we just had a, a wrong premise and we had a good reason for holding that premise. So I think that would be helpful. And also as, as I've uh, <laughs> as I mentioned at the very end of my very long tweet thread, I, I think it would be really helpful for, for people like myself and you and, and other professionals in this space who don't have access to the charts that are actually inside the, the cyber center to just have an appendix that says, this is the threat. Maybe these are the actors and this is the likelihood that we think this will come up. You can do it going through and reading it. I have been doing this, but it would be nice if we could get the chart that I have faith that some analyst already has sitting on their desk. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I like to surround myself with people who make charts. Craig, if you're listening, I'm talking to you. Charts are my jam. Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This was an illuminating conversation and I'm sure the audience will appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for having me. And I'll just say here, congratulations again on recently finishing your PhD. And I hope that you and everyone else listening is able to stay safe and stay healthy.
Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for your time. All right. Cheers.